Um, just before Rob comes, I'd like to, to let you know a little bit about how we're thinking about the possible endings and endings of the retreat. Um, first thing to say is uh, if you've put your name on the list for an individual interview and haven't had one yet, which there are a good number, there'll be hopefully a couple more offered tonight. And tomorrow, if you're able to stay after um, lunch, then we can see some more. Um, we would intend to see a few more people then as well. So, um, yeah, and if you want to check in around that, um, you know, or let us know when you're leaving uh, and you're still on the list, let us know that. That would be great. Um, I said the other day, uh, you know, that people who haven't had a chance to express their love and thanks to Rob in an individual interview or if you had one and didn't still get to do that, um, we'll make a, a kind of time tomorrow, um, semi-informally, but in the lounge after the closing session here, so at 11.30, where it's also room cleaning, so that still has to happen, and all of that, um, and the books and all of the rest of it in the library. Um, but in the lounge, Rob and I will be there, and um, people, if you want to have a moment, to, uh, a minute or two or three but um you know that you want to have a, a private word with rob if that's what you would like to do then then that's the kind of way you can go in and out of that um like that um but bear in mind there's lots of people here as well so it won't be a full interview or everything it would be a if you want to make that contact there will be a chance for that and we'll also do some other pieces around ending of course um but that's where that part that's a little bit more personal and private can happen in that kind of way but there will have other forms in the ending of the retreat as well and just to say tonight one of the ideas uh, that we had you know on the night the day before the retreat ends often there will be a dana talk and on our soul making retreats mark has done a fabulous job of offering dana talks as he does and he's not because he's not here but we just we had another idea this time um, which we'd love to invite you to participate in, which is that um, we, I'll set it up tonight if, you, you, if you're up for it, um, where you're all sort of facing into each other with a space in the middle, semi-ritualized in a way, but where the dana talk is offered by the community um, and in the way that I think Lee Brassington does it or some other teachers do it now, and we've, we've uh, done this on our Buddha Dharma Sangha camp, where there's a mature community of practitioners that, um, uh, let's say, there will be 20 statements of dana made, and one person stands up on, or sits down and offers their statements, whatever's on their heart to say about dana, and that's finishing. And the second person who is called upon to speak speaks with relation to Dana for this retreat and the staff, etc. Et and anything, the ensouling, the, all of it. Third person. And when 20 people have spoken, or we can decide the number we think is good, uh, they're not each giving a Dana talk. They're offering the part that's in their heart, right? And then when t 20, if that's what we decide is the number, are done, then it is complete. Um, it's really lovely where I've witnessed, been part of, and been not part of. And Rob and I wouldn't be here for that part. It, this would be um, yours. 
Uh, that's not the only thing that we intend to for tonight, but that was one idea. Um, and then we'll have a, we'll, we're, we're intending for something else tonight, and then tomorrow morning, sitting before breakfast, Nick will, will offer our staff coordinators uh, closing information. And then in the closing session here, I think it's at 9.30, 9.30 till 11.30, we'll have some formal ending together as well. And I know there's a part where that some of you have written notes and that would like to be a pl place where we can um, bless Rob. Hello. <laughs> so, so we'll see if that's part of it too. Again, I apologize, I had a couple of appointments and I didn't have time to um, collate them into a, a, a sort of logical thread of order, but uh, let's just see. Is there a reason you don't have a ceremony of taking some form of precepts at the beginning of this kind of retreat? I would find such a ritual very supportive in the creation of boundaries and safety within which this beautiful work can take place. <coughs> um, thank you. Uh, yes, in interesting, you're prob probably not alone, wh whoever wrote that. Um, all, all the retreats at Guy House are run with the explicit understanding that everyone, everyone here will be keeping the five precepts. Uh, um, and uh, 
that should have been kind of gone through by a coordinator before the opening. Yeah. Um, the reason Catherine and I didn't do it is just because often it feels like with these kind of retreats, there's quite a lot that we would like to do on the opening evening, and we're conscious that people have traveled and will run late anyway, etc. So we, in a way, we're looking to minimize what we do, and if the coordinators can do a bit in their, in their opening, uh, there's just a practical reason to hand it to them. Um, of course, for some people, uh, a coordinator sitting up here and just reading a list of the precepts um, doesn't carry the same uh, impact or, or on, on the soul and the being or beauty as, as a ritual might. Um, so yeah, we acknowledge that maybe it's something to think about. Um, but more broadly, uh, people will probably differ. I, 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 if I speak personally, and not to say everyone should be like this at all, pe- people differ. So if I, some people, I have heard um, them say that at some point in their in their uh, history of their Dharma practice and exposure to Dharma teachings, they formally took the precepts with so-and-so teacher or so-and-so or in some such, such and such a place in India. And, um, and of the people who say that, uh, for, some, for some it's clear that that was really a turning moment in their life and they took uh, that very seriously and, and perhaps their, uh, their ability to, 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 to uh, incorporate that as a turning point was due to the, the ritual and the ceremony and the way it was set up. Um, for other people who have reported that to me, I see that they took the precepts um, and I see that it didn't make much difference. They're still not keeping this or that precept or the precepts. So the presence or absence of a ceremony um, in, in itself doesn't, doesn't really do anything. Uh, again, if I ju- n- not to, people are different, so it's really important. But if I think back, I, I heard my first Dharma talk, I uh, never had heard any Dharma at all. Mm. Uh, in the, I think I was 19 or something in, uh, in college and um, and if I'm like probably memory's a little hazy but I, I, I seem to think I, I seem to recall that the teacher just sort of talked for I don't know how long and went through um, the, the precepts and the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path in, in one talk and I, you know, was like most other 19-year-olds ingesting certain substances and, and uh, things like that and partying and, you know. And I heard this talk and I stopped smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol and, and everything just there. And I practiced every day since then. Um, <laughs> apart from when I had that thermonuclear uh, <laughs> explosion thing when I was actually sent away from a retreat. But, um, but that wasn't for breaking the precepts, that was for being, for being nuts. Um, <laughs> so uh, my, my point is that the, the, the presence or absence of a ceremony, it, 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 may, it, you know, it may help some people, it may, it may do nothing. Um, to me, the precepts are just a way to live. You know, they're, they're just uh, completely incorporated in, into my being. And I would say 
This, this, these practices, we do any Dharma practice, they totally rest on the precepts. So that's, a, that's what the Buddha talked about. We talk about foundations, bases, roots, etc. Um, the, the precepts are a foundation. You want to start playing with all this like super fiery eros and things like that when you don't have a kind of basis, really rooted basis in the, in, in the precepts. It's not going to fly. Things will break. The, 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 the vessel, the ship will fall apart on the, on the stormy oceans. Um, so to me, they're just completely integrated. Maybe, maybe so much so that it's a blind spot, and uh, we should emphasize them more because it might not be the case for other people. Um, but for me, they're just they're, they're how you live. They're not necessarily how you be on retreat or off retreat. Or now we're doing something special. It's just it's part of how you live, um, and that goes with a a, a a commitment to kindness and compassion and care and sensitivity and all the rest of it. This isn't in the question, but I will just add. Um, so uh, they form they form a foundation. If we pick up on on the language, I think I seem to have been absent every time. Catherine seems to have gone through this with you. But the f- difference between foundations and roots, you've said that. Yeah, no, physically absent. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, yeah. So there's a foundation, and then what happens? Um, to the precepts as the soul-making dharma goes deeper. Or, or w- we should say this, what happens to one's relationship with ethics as the soul-making dharma goes deeper? I would, when I first started um, talking about soul-making dharma, wasn't, I hadn't even thought of that word back then, but I think the first couple of talks I gave were actually about ethics. Um, if I remember, the meditator is revolutionary and the necessity of fantasy. They were about um, eh, uh, climate change, ethics, and image or fantasy. Um, And they were probably way too long and complicated, so probably most people just heard talks about climate change, um, which is fair enough and fine. Um, But part of the point I wanted to make, and I still want to make it, is that um, it can be easy and uh, maybe even common, I don't know, in, in for, for some Buddhist practitioners or practitioners to look at the kind of things we're talking about and doing and worry about the ethics there. Or maybe not hear so much about ethics and think, you're talking about all this sexual stuff, and then you have this violent imagery that you're saying it's okay, and all this business. Um, I would, I would actually, and what I was trying to do all those years ago, uh, is is actually say, look, we have all this talk about ethics, and we have this e- these ethical commitments in the Dharma. Are there not gaps in them? That image is operating anyway whether we have even heard the word imaginal or soul-making, so that um, oftentimes the image, that's the archetypes that are prevalent and dominant and influential for a lot of Dharma practitioners are ones of passivity and equanimity. And you don't get, especially in Theravadan Dharma, you get the picture of the Buddha like this, got his eyes shut and he's meditating. He's very, very peaceful and fine, thank you very much, while the world is burning. 
and uh, and it's not at all to blame the Buddha or anything like that, but images operate for us. They're highly influential. And so what can happen, what can happen, I'm not saying it always happens, what can happen is that then there are crises and the range of responses or the range in which the self uh, the practitioner self can then I- manifest and embody forth or speak up or not speak up gets limited by the archetype that is unconsciously operating. Do you understand? So, what happens when we do soul-making dharma? Everything gets stretched. The archetypes get stretched. So there is the place of the troublemaker. There is the place of the person who will not shut up who will rage, who bellows fire, who puts themselves on the tarmac and gets arrested, as some of you have been doing, um, is just a different archetype. It's extended the range of archetypes. And in the extension of the range of archetypes, it's extended the ethical, um, the, the ethical response. So you say, I'm, I'm okay because I'm following these five precepts. And that's actually very little engagement with ethics and very little kind of creative tussling with the wrestling, uh, wrestling with the, 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 the kind of almost impossible questions and conundrum that we have in, in, in modern times <laughs> in a globalized society. <coughs> Friend went out and bought me this. I don't know, you know, where the hell did this come from? What conditions was it made under? Who suffered for this and who profited? I keep the five precepts. Don't to say anything about sweatshops in Bangladesh or whatever it is. So it, there c- I'm not saying there is, but there it's always like when the eyes awake, it's like l- looking where where there can be a kind of complacency. Oh, I'm I'm a good Buddhist. I you know I I follow precepts but there actually isn't that real wrestling how do we what on earth are we going to do about climate change and species loss when there's seven billion people to feed most of them are in poverty not most but you know uh, uh, etc um, these are difficult ethical questions and if it always looks um, it just looks peaceful it looks okay it looks equanimous maybe the heart feels a little something so soul making, I would say, has, um, if you like, it become the foundation of ethics becomes a root. In other words, it becomes something organic that can grow and, and nourish, like a root of a tree grows. You understand? And then, and, but then that enters into difficult territory. I'm going to piss people off. I've pissed plenty of people off. And, you know, I have to be okay with that and decide, well, maybe it's, you know, the cost of the ethical whatever price of pissing people off versus, I don't know, something else. So uh, that's one point. The second point is element number 27. This is actually one that I know. (laughs) I think Marion will tell me I've got it wrong. Is it values? Yes. (laughs) So values. Values, and, and that includes ethical values, moral values, are, are actually implicit in images, interestingly. So they're not immediately obvious, but the images that t- we are ethical beings. Uh, again, I was physically absent, but I think Catherine said the thing about when 
um, when the word justice is mentioned, that actually more of the neuro neural network lights up. Okay. Um, we have the human soul, uh, the healthy human soul, let's say, has uh, this love of moral values. And, and, and I was planning to give a whole series of talks on ethics, uh, but I got the metastatic diagnosis and have just been completely uh, busy busy with that but I don't know well, I hope I hope it'll be possible but the point is that um, values including moral values are actually wrapped up in in uh, images they're there and again that we they, we can tune to them turn them on see what they say get turned on by them and the re the, the whole question of values look humanity has been debating ethics and values and since since before written history it's complex it's it's one of these uh, subjects that's so rich it's unending and it's not comfortable in other words if you think you found easy answers to to ethics in your life you're just not really engaging it as fully as as it might be engaged they're open-ended ongoing ongoing um, difficult questions that we wrestle with and if there isn't that wrestling there, well, something else is going on, but it's not, uh, it's not uh, that full um, rooting or becoming root of ethics. Um, but, but going back to what I said before, the range is extended. So it doesn't just look kind of, oh, he speaks softly and calmly and it's all very loud. He's very good at letting go and equanimity and never says anything that might offend anyone. You think about Jesus or someone, of course it got him into a lot of trouble, didn't it? It didn't end so well, depends where you put the ending. But um, uh, So anyway, you, you get the point. It's, um, to me it's a, it's a really, really important uh, um, area and it's, it's integral to what we're doing. And if it isn't at the beginning, it will become so. It must, just because of the, how the soul-making dynamic works. It will, it will pull these things in, they will become obvious, it will extend your range uh, ethically and your ethical sensibility and moral sensibility and all that. Um, but yes, in terms of ceremony, we, we can certainly think about that. <coughs> um, here's an interesting question. I actually don't know uh, what? Well, actually, here's, here's one that follows immediately. Can you see a place for ritual or a need for it in soul-making practice? And if so, where does it fit? Um, absolutely. Um, we, uh, we usually have a few rituals as part of these retreats. Um, maybe less this time just because of my health and capacities and energies. But um, we're, we're very keen on it, you know. Um, I think partly uh, the function of rituals is, um, from a soul-making perspective, is that uh, they start to, what's happening in ritual, um, again, this is one of these subjects we could talk about a lot, but what, one of the things that's happening in ritual is that when, you, when, when we meditate, you know, it looks very still and the eyes are closed, and um, it's, you know, what's engaged, mind, so to speak, and okay, experience of body, but action of body is not, it's still. 
Um, and then typically when we meditate, we close the eyes. So there's, there's a kind of shutting out of a lot of the sensory uh, uh, connection with, with the things of the world. In ritual, one of the things we're doing is including um, the actions of body, the um, manifestations of voice, speech, as well as mind, and the objects of the world. And all that gets included, um, which doesn't usually when I sit silently with my eyes closed meditating on something. So when we talk about sensing with soul, and when we talk about this, this idea that the whole point, perhaps, I mean, for me, anyway, the whole point of, of these practices and this teaching is to extend and expand the range of our senses of what is sacred. Um, then ritual is very much a part of that. I remember a beautiful ritual that Catherine led. Some of you were here. It was a few retreats ago. And uh, I think it was this on the floor. And then she spoke a little bit about certain words and things. And we had these tangerines, if I remember. Were any of you here for that? For me, through the ritual, the tangerines right then, in that space of whatever it was, half an hour, um, they, they became sanctified. My sense of the tangerine uh, was was of, of sacred sacredness right there. So this is part of the function of ritual, that it starts to include the, um, the things of the world, the objects of nature and the senses, and, uh, and supports and opens our capacity to, to sense them with soul, to, to sense them with sacredness, uh, uh, as sacred, including the self, other selves, bodies, the actions of body, the gestures, the movements, etc., in a way, all the stuff we haven't done on this retreat, we did a bit of movement. Uh, I think we had three or four sessions of movement on one of the retreats. And again, the function is the same. It's really, look, here I am fiddling with my hat uh, or moving my hands. It, with, 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 a, with a, if I'm sensing with soul, this very movement of hands, it's just, you know, automatic when I blah, blah, blah. Um, the very movement has this poetic sacredness to it. So it's part of the function of ritual to make things like the ordinary movements or ordinary objects, food, tangerines, whatever it is, um, and sanctify them, bless the eyes, bless the senses that they can sense that way, sensing with soul. That's one of the functions. So absolutely, I think there's a place. and. I never used to be into ritual at all, and now I'm to totally l love it. You know, um, uh, just yeah, like I said, this retreat is have had to had to be limited, unfortunately, uh, somewhat. But uh, there's still time, so we don't know what might happen. Um, There was another question. Yeah, here's the question I didn't quite know how to answer, really, um, but I'll say it anyway and see what comes. Um, do you think any consent is needed before relating to someone as image, live, in the moment? For example, over soup yesterday, I had a highly erotic encounter with the person sitting opposite me. My energy body was very alive and it felt soul-making. Really, I'm very curious about what seeing others and self as imaged image, whilst interacting with them, or live, as it were, in the moment, can open up, question mark, the benefits, the risks. 
Um, yeah, I I don't know about the consent thing. I think that um, <coughs> so I don't know. That's my main answer. Is I don't know. Um, but I can tell you the kinds of things that I'm thinking is that if 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 the elements are there and they're switched on. In other words, if it's really fully imaginal or towards that end then there's there's no danger there's no intrusion there's nothing like that whatsoever why because it's not real it's neither real nor not real and there's humility and there's the sense of divinity and there's love which implies a respect for for the other person's being uh, and anyway to perceive that way uh, takes an extraordinary amount of sensitivity so it's not that in, in the seat of that sensitivity one's going to be exquisitely sensitive to how beautiful they are and how much eros one is feeling and completely insensitive to, uh, to uh, another person and their space and what they might need, etc. I guess it's possible, it's highly unlikely. So I, I think, yeah, my answer is I don't know, but I would um, think that... Um, if all the elements are there, then actually it's completely safe. Um, if they're not there, you know, if you haven't, in other words, I'm, if a person hasn't really tasted, you know, they just hear, maybe they just randomly pick a talk on Dharma Seed and start listening, what the hell is this? Um, and then they write to whatever the international Buddhist authorities are <laughs> and say, do you know that there's these people in Devon and that, um, um, that's all based, that kind of trepidation and fear and it must be unethical and, and all this stuff or what are they, you know, that's all based on just not having tasted it, not, not having understood. Um, I think if a person really knows that, then they'll recognize these elements there and they'll recognize the non, non-intrusiveness of it. One thing I, th- or I threw out once or twice was when we talk about energy and energy body and the energy field between people, um, now most spiritual cultures tend to think of that as a real thing. Um, so that we, we uh, you know, what is that? It, um, it's got a word like psychic vampire or something. Has anyone heard? Is that, is that, so th- that sort of thing? Or... Or, uh, you know, um, I, such things may, may well exist, absolutely, but that's not, that's, uh, it's not, certainly we're not doing any kind of psychic vampirism, (laughs) but, um, but, but more importantly, I think when, when things really get going, the sense of the energy is neither real nor not real. Not just the image, not just the object, not just the self, but also the energy. And that does something as well. Yeah? In other words, it, it makes it unintrusive, uninvasive, etc. Um, but if, if these pieces aren't there, and you just kind of hear a bit or something, and then you feel like, you know, a person feels some kind of license, oh, basically it's just saying it's okay, you know, to do whatever, or... Um, I would get a little nervous, yeah, with that. So th- those are some of my thoughts um, about that. <coughs> um. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I am still very new to the imaginal practice. Could you line out very briefly again what it 
is that is important or necessary to pay attention to when just at the cusp of entering into a specific imaginal practice or when bringing in an image to be worked with. What are the important questions to be asked? What are, or some of the important questions to be uh, asked to oneself or the image? Is a certain amount of resonance, aliveness, or meaningfulness of the image a prerequisite to be able to work with it in the imaginal? Or can any anyone be brought alive by slowing by slowly tuning into the elements. Um, <coughs> again, I, I would, the simple answer is I would, I would point to the elements. Um, and they don't necessarily have to be in a specific order. So it's really, you know, I can't think of an example right now, but there's, actually there's many examples where um, I might have given, uh, you know, I might be sitting and um, maybe not feeling so well, maybe affected by drugs, maybe not. It, it, it's kind of irrelevant. The point is that the mind drifts off whatever I was trying to do, and and there's sort of bits of daydream floating around for some moments. And some of those daydreams, you know, the initial things are there, there nothing interesting there. Um, there's many times where actually, for some reason, I decided to take one of those you know, daydream fragments or something and actually bring it in and work with it and it becomes imaginal. The one the one often for me is music, is just sort of music is going on and then then I sort of work with that and, and very rich um, imaginal territory opens up with, with the sort of musical daydreams that were going on. So it's not the object per se. Um, it's more the, um, the the way of looking, the way of relating and everything that we've been talking about in terms of energy body and um, uh, attention to the nodes or f- you know, seeing if I can ignite this or that element, um, balancing, seeing if the self can get involved, all that will, will fertilize and support um, whatever is going on to become more fully imaginal. And... Um, as I said, when I gave a, a short talk on the elements of the imaginal in in the lounge, you know, there's this tension, there's this kind of creative, con- con- contradictory um, uh, nature, a bit, uh, uh, contradictory relationship between some of the elements, so that we have the very first a- uh, element of the lattice is just the lattice itself. In other words, it's saying, look, it's not the object, it's the way of looking. Remember that. And and all these elements are part of the way of looking. Something is nothing is inherently imaginal. So you know, Lord of the Rings movies are not inherently imaginal. I mean, they might be to someone, or they might be to someone in a certain state of mind, but they're not inherently imaginal. They've got ogres, and uh, I'm not really into them, so I don't know what else do they have. They have prin- princesses and wizards and elves and all that stuff. You think, oh, it's hobbits. Middle, you know, whole landscape. You think it was totally imaginal, but it's not inherently. So, mythical content doesn't equate as as imaginal. Imaginal in our language means the the elements are coming alive, and the more they come alive, the more the the further or the more fully or authentically imaginal in 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 what we mean. Um, So, 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 what that means then is 
uh, in terms of this question is that on the one hand, you've got, okay, it's kind of up to me. It's kind of up to me to finesse and work with and shape my way of looking, meaning my whole relationship with this object in the world or this image or whatever it is right now. And, m and maybe in doing that, maybe in that um, technical art, let's say, um, in the art of, of the technique and the technique of it, um, it, it helps the most seemingly irrelevant thing to become fully imaginal. It was just this blah, blah, blah that went through my mind. But actually, because the, the relationship has been worked, I've done that actively. Yeah. So you've got that on the one hand, the sort of encouragement to, uh, to be active, to say, y you can change the way of looking. You can play with the relationship. And if you, if you do that skillfully and with art, you're going to create a kind of relationship in the moment that is allows the image to become fully imaginal. So you've got that on one side. On the other side, you've got element number, I've no idea, um, which is grace, with the implication that, and, and maybe you've tasted this, you know, a lot of these elements are kind of to be noticed. So it's more like, it was a grace, it was a gift. I've, I couldn't have made that up. I couldn't have choreographed it and the very precise way it was kind of, mirrors my life and or my dukkha or my you know so you've got this kind of inexplicable gift grace or inexplicable on, on one side in in a somewhat contradictory relationship with the encouragement to um, to you know develop one's techniques and, and skills um, but basically, yeah, I, would, I guess I would point back to nodes. There might be something in terms of that node of grace of a certain posture that's open to grace. You know, that goes then with humility and reverence. So a certain poise, you know, and I, I feel that's very much part of, of this, this, these kind of practices. It's not, it's not all about, right, let's fix this thing, you know, um, nor is it all about, you know, <laughs> uh, um, there's there's something balanced there, but if 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 we're talking about grace, is grace also requires a certain sensibility to open to it and to receive it. It's it's actually quite a uh, a, a, a delicate, beautiful, subtle poise of the being to be open to grace and to notice grace. Does this? Yeah. So there's a, there's a tension here. So I wouldn't point to any one particular thing. It's often good. Energy body is always a good place to start, but it doesn't actually have to be linear linear at all like that. Um, so I think that answers. Is that okay? Yes. Or is there more? No, it's good. Okay. <coughs> uh, how to deal with sexual eros in, quote, real relationship after the retreat, for example. A bit of guidance is required. Um, does this person want to say more about what the concern is, or we don't have to, I, I could try and say something, but I'm not quite sure what the, uh, what the, what the question would be. Yeah, okay, you don't have to. So, um, how to deal with sexual eros in real relationship? Uh, so I've, I've no idea what I'm trying to aim at with the response here. Um, I wonder whether what's prompting the question, or part of what's prompting the question, is just again that 
um, obviously we're aware, everyone's aware of, uh, you know, um, sexual desire can harm people. In fact, mostly when there's sexual desire, at some point someone or other gets hurt in some way or another. Um, and certainly there's uh, the possibility of uh, intrusive or unwanted or abusive um, sexual desire being acted out and being yeah, devastatingly uh, harmful. Um, so I wonder whether the question is coming from from a concern about that and then therefore not quite trusting the soul-making practice and one's own capacity to sort of tolerate eros, to be aware of it within this imaginal middle way, neither real nor not real. Um, I, again, I, I would point back to more practicing and not and not tr- not kind of encourage someone to practice um, with a sexual eros if it actually feels like I'm not, I don't have the vessel yet to handle that. I wouldn't practice it with it in meditation, you know, even. Um, I mean, you can, you have to see how it goes, but if it feels like this is, this is you know, I'm spending 23 and a half hours a day under the cold shower, um, it, it, it's, uh, it, you know, you, you do need a certain capacity and therefore a certain skill with energy body, with, with view as well. You know, one of the things uh, a while ago I threw out in a talk, and I can't remember what they are now, was a list of things you can do when it starts to get really hot you know, and it's kind of almost intolerable, the sexual eros. Um, w- one of them is expand the energy body, expand the energy body awareness. Why? Because um, eros is not a problem. What's a problem is craving. And cra- when craving goes with reification. Craving also goes with a contraction of the energy body. Every time there's craving, the energy body contracts. If you don't know this, study it until you absolutely know it for certain. A hair's breadth of craving and you can feel it in the energy body. Uh, Relaxing of the craving, the energy body opens. Open up the energy body and sometimes the craving soothes and and that craving can then become eros. So what often happens, it may happen more for men than women, I don't know, but um, sexual energy often gets contracted too in a certain area of the body and then there's an enormous amount of pressure in, in that area of the body. Um, and it can feel hard to contain and, and then one must act or release or this or that. Um, but really simple thing, again, it's practice, practice, practice. The more space there is in, in the energy body awareness, the more that sexual energy can actually fill the whole space. And like a gas, when it has more space, there's less pressure. Right? You know that from... Now, did you guys do O-levels or GCSEs? <laughs> GCSEs, I think so. Did they teach you this about gases? And <laughs> so more space, less pressure is one very simple thing. A much more sophisticated thing uh, in this list that I now cannot remember, but is there somewhere in the Eros Unfettered series, um, is if, if you're able to do it, and again, this will only, this will only be a, even make sense or be accessible if you've already done quite a bit of soul-making practice and imaginal practice, is... This desire, this eros, this sexual energy, whose is it? So, of course, the, the normal human thing is it's mine. I don't even think it. It feels like mine. 
and either I feel bad about it or whatever, but it's mine. I'm identifying with it, just like that's the normal way to identify with anything that's going on in the body, usually. Typical, or rather mainstream Dharma can say, whose is it, and say it's anatta. It doesn't belong, it's not yours, don't identify with it. If you take something that's going on in the body, let's say in this case sexual sexual energy that's uncomfortable, and you decide, I'm just going to see it as anatta, and again and again, you're just viewing it, not me, not mine, not me. There is this energy, there is this sexual energy, there is this discomfort, rather than it's mine. So I'm not even waiting to make sure that I have this idea that it's mine. You do have the idea that it's yours. It's just a normal human way of functioning. But in, in the mainstream Dharma approach, um, one, of the, one of the contemplations of what's called three characters, contemplating it as anatta, as not self, not me, not mine. What happens if I take any, any experience and I just keep regarding it in them over and over, not me, not mine? I know you know the answer to this. Oh, come on, humor me. <laughs> Good. It fades. The sexual energy will go away. Now, at first, actually, you, you have to, again, this is the kind of practice you, you, you gain skill in. So the first thing is probably nothing happens. Then if you stay with it, what happens? Oh, there's a bit more space. There's a bit more relief. I have a bit more distance on this sexual energy. It's not so compulsive. It's not so um, painful and difficult and oppressive. If you keep, if you develop your skill with that anatta and you keep doing it, whatever this could be, could be the same for a knee pain or whatever, it starts to fade. The, the perception itself starts to fade. And, and so um, bye-bye problem, bye-bye sexual eros as well. Um, really, really skillful. Really, really wonderful to, to devote the time to develop that kind of practice. Not just a- absolutely... Um, uh, the main point is not for the relief it can bring uh, in those kind of situations. That's actually completely uh, secondary. It's way down the list. What's much more important is what that says about emptiness and dependent arising in the long run and, and that view. So there's normal view. It's mine. Of course, I don't even think it. I feel it. I identify with it. There's the possibility of a traditional Dharma view of regarding it as not me, not mine. And then there's the possibility of uh, a soul-making, an imaginal view, which views this desire, this sexual eros, however hot and lusty it is, however even uncomfortable and forceful it is, um, forceful in the being, um, uh, it's, it's mine, and it's not mine, and it's God's. It's the divine's, it's the Buddha nature's. So it's not just a kind of what they call a non-affirming negation. It's not mine, but you're not saying whose it is, as you do in the anatta. You're actually saying um, it's a kind of triple triple view at once. Mine, yes, of course. Not mine, yes. And God's. In other words, through this, through my eyes, through my lust, through my passion, through my desire, through my body, through my libido, uh, you choose your words. The, the divine eros is operating, is seeing, is desiring. Is that an absolute dogmatic truth? No, it's a poetic point of view. We're entertaining a logos, a certain logos. And, and what happens when we do that? A whole other level of beauty and soul-making comes in, but also the pressure comes off. 
because the tightness of the identification with it makes it uncomfortable. And the divine or whatever, uh, uh, the Buddha nature, uh, when it's seen as part of that, it's uh, the, the, the problem goes out of it. It's but, but the eros stays, unlike with the anatta. Does this make any... Yeah. So that's quite a sophisticated thing to do, but it's there as a possibility. Um, in terms of this note, uh, how to deal with sexually or in real relationship after the retreat, for example. Um, yeah, I'm just not sure what's behind it. It might be something to do with a long-term relationship and where things are at in terms of the intimacy and the sexual intimacy and one, one person feeling, I want to kind of open that to another level, the possibility of that, and not sure if the partner is interested. Um, I couldn't possibly answer that question without without hearing a lot more and talking a lot more about the nature of that relationship and what's possible. I think, like all retreats, um, uh, even a sort of mainstream Dharma retreat, we have to be careful about what we, in our enthusiasm, um, what we then want to impose on others, particularly those who are close to us, who might not be interested, who might not be ready for it, who it might not be what they want. Um, and certainly if you go... Um, uh, you know, uh, lustily speaking Greek to them, um, <laughs> it may not go down so well. You know, um, they're not. It's like, what are you even talking about? And and so all, all this, just like any retreat, it's, it asks for a lot of sensitivity, a lot of care, and um, but also for for the other person, but also for you, <laughs> also for you. You know, um, that you're will go through this again, but you, you're going to be very sensitive. You're going to be primed. Certain, certain um, deep soul desires come, come open and on fire, and we're basically saying, let yourself have that. Let yourself open to it. It's part of who you are. And everyone else is, or most people seem to be allowing that. And then suddenly, you know, y- one goes out into the world, and it's not like that. It, that's not the agreement. That's not the, the view with back to structures and... Um, and and whatnot. So, um, really, to take care of one's own um, openness and sensitivity and vulnerability, but also the, those of others. So, I'm sorry, I I, I can't say much more than that. Um, and I might have completely missed the point here. But uh, there's there's a chance to uh, ask again or write again if if you want. Yes, please. Is that Lauren? I can't quite see. Yes. Yeah. 
Thank you, Lauren. Could everyone hear that? Yeah, yeah. I think it is important, and it's it feels as you're expe- you haven't said it, but it's just a, it would be a natural uh, uh, outflow of of the richness of the practice if one's practicing. Um, so we did a little bit on uh, some of the last few retreats of um, sharing a, a very formal uh, exercises where images were shared, um, but not necessarily the other as image right then, but just sharing images. And you could, those of you who did that or have done it from the recordings, um, you can get a sense of just how potent that is, you know, and, and the, the, po- the way we're just touched by the poetry of someone else's image. It's almost like an image can be infectious or, or shared, you know, or this image, um, I enter into an image that you, oftentimes I find in interviews, someone shares an image and I'm, I'm living that image right, right there. And it's as if, I, my eyes are as valid almost, uh, my sense of the image as, as, as the person. Um, it's very potent, or it can stimulate another image that's not the same image. Um, <coughs> so yeah, again, if, if we had more time, etc., on this retreat and more capacity, w- we would have done more of that. <coughs> with the um, uh, working with another and, and they, each other, is the image for each other in real time then, I mean, two things to say about that. One is, <coughs> um, you know, if you're already with your partner and there's already that, and that's who you're doing it with, in in a way, then there's not the danger of um, if you're doing it with someone and maybe they're married to someone else or whatever the agreement is, they're not in an open relationship, etc. And then there's all this eros potentially flying around, um, and and you have to, you know, it's like, how can we handle that? Are we okay with that? So that's a big ask. One of the reasons why I'm a little bit cautious about sharing some of that material is um, is also because um, I feel at this point, and maybe even more so given my predicament health-wise, um, <coughs> I feel uh, that the, the, these teachings, uh, or a lot of the time I feel sometimes I'm like, oh, whatever, but um, a lot of the time I feel that these teachings, they're so new and they need, they need safeguarding. So I- even if th- three people went out and started to do that practice with great enthusiasm with someone where there was a boundary and then that boundary was transgressed and other people got upset and then rumors went round, it would actually affect the whole thing. And it would affect what people think and Guy House would say, well, I'm not sure that we want to allow you to run another soul-making retreat. So I feel ultra-sensitive to the various ways in which, that's just one way, but the various ways in which this kind of um, paradigm needs a bit of protecting, um, certainly at this stage where it's so new. Um, The thing about, you know, uh, everything's uh, unlike in the Buddha's time or, or... even even at the start of when insight meditation came to the West in the seventies, um, there wasn't internet back then. Nowadays, you know, one of us says something, it's on the internet, and someone in California is already doing something weird with, uh, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, yeah, that's what. I, that's why I figured that it would land okay. So, um, well, I could have said Tottenham, but anyway. Um, <laughs> um, 
so I, I feel sensitive to that and, and kind of some degree of responsibility and some degree of just hope. It's like I feel um, in many ways, uh, this is a little off, off your track of your question, but I will come back. Um, I feel in, in many ways, um, what's the word, dependent and vulnerable um, to you guys. You know, uh, not just because I might not be around, I probably won't be around, not just because of that, but I am anyway, we are anyway, um, because uh, it's not just me who's responsible or us that's responsible for caretaking for this. And it's so easy for things to get diluted, misconstrued, um, <coughs> uh, uh, acted on, you know, rashly or without care that then has influences on, you know, on other people in this room who didn't, didn't even know what you did or, or, or whatever. So, so that's one of the reasons why I'm a little cautious with it. Um, can't remember the other reason now, sorry. Um, sorry, gone blank. Um, It's may, maybe maybe if there's time we will record some some teachings about that. Um, I think it just needs a lot of care, you know. Uh, and mm, yeah, sorry, I can't I can't remember what else I wanted to say about it. How does that sound, Lauren? Yeah. Okay. So maybe at some point we can have that conversation, yeah. Uh, let's just see. Did you want to say anything about it? <laughs> yeah, there's quite a lot to say. It's a ver it's a it's the thing about that kind of is it's super abundantly rich. Um, so not just in terms of erotic charge, but but it's 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 very rich. It's like turbocharging things. Um, and not always, because sometimes there won't be that kind of spark between people. But um, so it's asking a lot. It's asking to handle a lot, and and one 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 needs to have that uh, that possibility uh, within oneself and in, in the in the in the dyad. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just losing what I was going to say. So. Yeah. Uh, Thinking about the adventures of other explorers of the imagination imaginal, such as Jung or Hillman, <coughs> Nietzsche, do you think that soul-making dharma offers a smoother or safer path? Can these same approaches help with the difficulties that meditators sometimes encounter on and off the cushion, such as Kundalini roller coaster or Dark Night, as described by Jack Cornfield in A Path with Heart? Um, <coughs> So, just to have to be brief, some of these questions are huge and yeah, I feel like we'll probably talk hours on them, but just to briefly now. So, um, it was interesting. I, I, I was struck by, um, actually Hillman makes this point, you know, when Jung started doing his explorations, um, and, and the Jungian tradition still, maybe less so nowadays, but for quite some decades, kind of, um, there was this, they use the language of the unconscious, as if it's this terrifying pit of m dark darkness and monsters and who knows what might come up and bite you and um, uh, etc. And and that was, if you like, it almost seemed like a preconception. 
And then similar to Julia's question yesterday, you say, oh, I, I take, I operate with that preconception and lo and behold, that <laughs> that's kind of what gets created there. And Hillman points out, um, writing some decades later probably, I can't remember his words, but he's kind of sarcastic and caustic and says something like, you know, the, the unconscious now has just become... I can't remember what he said, but joking, it's just it's something that people kind of journal about and stuff. It's all very tame and, and not scary at all. So what's the, what's the true thing there? It depends on, on the conceptual framework, partly. Nietzsche's a whole other kettle of fish, um, and I'm not sure he was really into what we're talking about anyway. But, um, and, yeah, let's, let's not get on to Nietzsche. Um, <laughs> but, um, so do I think it's... Uh, smoother or safer um, and if we get onto this thing about kundalini roller coaster or dark night some of you may not know what that means so <coughs> um, um, Jack's got a book called Path with Heart and there are other books around which either describe uh, uh, use this borrow this term from St. John of the Cross called dark night of the soul St. John of the Cross meant it in a completely different way I mean utterly utterly different it, so the modern the modern meaning in, let's just uh, keep it in Theravadan Buddhist circles, has come to mean that if you do insight practice with a lot of intensity and you start to go deep, um, you start to feel really uncomfortable and really unpleasant things start to happen. And maybe you go a little nuts or you feel really sick and, and over and over. And this just goes round and round in cycles. And, and so... People give it the name, the dark night of the soul, borrowing this term from St. John of the Cross, who meant something entirely different, um, etc. Or you get um, a kind of kundalini explosion, explosion of energy, similar to the thermonuclear thing I was describing, uh, or I alluded to. Um, I feel quite strongly about this. I, I, you know, looking back to the book I wrote on emptiness, I, I sort of, uh, there's so much in that book that I thought would be obvious if I just said it really subtly and gently, and cl- clearly it wasn't at all, uh, so I should have been much more direct and strong. I, I feel this is a complete misunderstanding and a mistake. Why? Everything's a dependent arising. If I feel sick from practice, it's because of the way I'm practicing. If I feel jittery and I feel like I'm going crazy and I feel like... Uh, way, you know, cycles of depression, because of the way I'm practicing. So, this, what's being referred to here, um, either the Kundalini thing or the Dark Knight Soul, tends to happen when there's two, two factors are, are, are prioritized in insight meditation. The contemplation of rapid moment-to-moment impermanence with a very narrow focus of intention, trying to get as atomized as possible, Attention, yeah, do I, yeah, atten- attention. Uh, a, a, a very narrow focus of attention. So here's a pain in my knee. How how microscopic can I get into those sensations, and and how fast can I see them change? And the more microscopic, and the faster I can see it change, um, the better my practice, and the quote deeper I'm going. And with that, there's a lot of intensity of effort encouraged. Put those three things in a box. What do you get? A box of mad frogs. <laughs> uh, 
not for everyone. It also depends on the psychophysical type. So that Sarah like that. <laughs> um, so uh, if I think about my 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 psychophysical makeup, look at me. I'm even thinner than I usually am, but I'm thin. I'm kind of wiry and wired and sort of hi- hyper alert and all that. <coughs> Nervous. Um, <laughs> um, and this is the wrong bod- body and psyche type to do that kind of practice. You get thermonuclear frog parts all over the place. Um, um, and it's almost like you can just wait for it to happen. You put someone else in who their their body type, it has words in Ayurveda, I can't remember what they are, but they're more, they're more, you know, what's it called? Ka- ka- kapha, yeah. Um, they're more... Uh, more just more plump, more slow, more uh, etc. That kind of person can often, and also their mind is not so fast and intense. That kind of person can do that kind of practice all day. Doesn't it's not a problem. It won't, it won't do anything. So you have to partly it's to do with the, the psychophysical makeup. But anyway, what's also happening there is it's prioritizing <coughs> um, impermanence as the main as the main one of the three characteristics. And it's not, it's seeing anatta, seeing not self, through, through the approach of impermanence. Th- there is no self because all I see in here is impermanent things. And there are other ways to do it. And you can find it all in, in, in uh, the book or in recordings uh, that I wrote. But, um, and then the whole insight practice unfolds very, very differently. So I... Uh, well, I'm saying it now. I, I, I think it's a little bit ridiculous, to be honest. Um, <coughs> and a lot of people suffer a lot or get really proud that they're going round and round in these cycles of misery um, as if it's some ba- badge of accomplishment. And I'm really near to arahantship because I'm, it's really, really uh, miserable. Um, <laughs> so to me, there's all kinds of problems with that. And, and, but one of them, and probably in a way the most serious, is, is that the deep insight isn't there. One's just seeing impermanence and things are exploding or disappearing or, or going nuts or energy's flying all over, whatever it is. Um, but where's the insight into dependent origination? Where's the insight into deep emptiness? One has seen impermanence. Impermanence can see impermanence. It's not, it's not a deep insight. It's not, it's not the level of insight that, that I think is more beautiful, more mystical, more transformative, etc., etc. Um... So, so when we come to our practice, and sorry, that sounds opinionated. I'm partly in response to, as I said, trying to say things so subtly and gently that it seemed like no one saw that they were there. But um, uh, when when we do this practice, we're emphasizing there's a lot of softness. You know, even when we say open the energy body, put the energy body in relationship with something, it's a lot softer than kind of burrowing my attention, you know, in, into some microscopic point and then just kind of holding it there. Um, so the whole and the inclusion of the heart and the sensitivity and and this kind of the, the encouragement to modulate and and uh, uh, attune the attention all this is is soft and subtle and open and so that the path deepens in soft subtle and open ways for the most part and there doesn't need to be all these explosions and difficulties and crazy crazy making stuff so um is it safer? Um, heavens, why don't I just stop now you paying around and say yes. <coughs> okay. 
Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, now, here's, here's, here's a question that went with a long question about um, the loving and being loved, etc. Is it okay for the person if I read the longer note? How are they going to respond to that? Is it a yes? Yes, okay. So here's a, a long, some of it. Um, okay, uh, let me just see. Um, okay, let's see. So I, p- I partly um, I partly don't know the answer to the main question, so that's actually interesting in itself. But th- it was such a beautiful image, and I just thought to share it. Yeah, if that's and and I can answer some of it if that helps. Um, <coughs> late in the <coughs> retreat, I know, so I understand if you cannot answer my questions. I feel moved to share an image anyway, and trust that in its sharing, something will reveal itself. A logos of keeping what is sacred, safe and protected inside will be stretched. Uh, I see. Uh, uh, an idea, a pattern of, of, of keeping what is sacred, safe, safe and protected inside will be stretched by sharing it. Is what, yeah, yeah, thank you. <coughs> After the sharing last night, my energy, so that's a very important point as well. After the sharing last night, my energy body contracted in contact with the thought of Catherine and all the whispering angels' grief. This morning, an image arose of my sister, I think, in part response to this, which touched me deeply. (coughs) Uh, Background, not image. My sister is passionate, beautiful, has a soul that loves soul-making, naturally imaginative, highly sensitive, and possibly too sensitive and passionate for this world at this time, question mark. Since 18, she has suffered from schizophrenia and is now totally housebound. The outside world is too impactful. So the image, (coughs) my sister is lying curled up on the floor in her flat. She is naked. Her features are not at all distinct, but I know it is her. There is more emphasis in this image on the room with tall ceilings. The space feels holy, sacred, like a chapel. The light is dim, yet there is luminosity. The colors are muted in hues of brown. The position of her body is twisted and contorted, indicating her immense the immense pain she is in, but there is a sense that she is assenting to this pain, choosing to remain in the room to take on the suffering of other souls who cannot or will not. Around her are a chaotic collection of eclectic objects, crisp packets, popped balloons, rubbish, trinkets, and a sense that a bird is building a nest around her. offering these objects to her, but the bird is not in the image, just a vague sense. So there's so much detail here. You see, you get the sense of an image, but of, of a aspect of an image, but it's not visual. It's just a, it's, it's all part of the imaginal. Don't get hung up on the visuals. You know. So the antennae are up, and just what's resonant. There's a bird, but I can't see the bird. I sense, I intuit. How do I know? I don't know how I know. It doesn't matter. <coughs> what matters is the feeling of it and the sense of soul-making. 
continues, this image became like a holy altar. My energy body filled out fully and inwardly I bowed. My heart center open and bright, despite being moved to tears. Bearing witness to her suffering feels beautiful, despite or even because of the pain, question mark. This image had the immediate effect of opening my perception of the previous night and to all fellow retreatants, angels bearing their own particular joys and pains. But the conception of individual suffering, theirs and my own, mm, struggling to read this, something, uh, for what I and all of us have been asked to hold in this lifetime expanded. Okay, so the conception of individual suffering, theirs and my own, uh, and f- for what I and all of us have been asked to hold in this lifetime expanded. So already it's doing something to the heart, to the soul sense, to the perception. <coughs> this is a new image, almost a snapshot of time, um, yet with the sense of the eternal. My question is, however, where in this is the eros? Is it between me and the image, the holy altar? Or is there something in the, bir- in the bird's tendings and offerings that do not ease the pain and yet? Or is the eros to the poignant beauty in the image? I would say all three. So there is eros in <coughs> between the meditator and the image, the holy altar of this scene. Um, <coughs> the poignant beauty of it, that, that there's eros towards that. Um, but also within the characters of the image, there is eros. Um, <coughs> most of the nodes are alight within this image, but love and being loved, question mark? With a human or animal image, I get this, but with a snapshot image, question mark, who is being loved? I feel love, but I'm sure I will figure it out if I stay longer. Um, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, there's definitely love in the image, and maybe uh, uh, maybe you don't need to figure out where the love is. It's so it's so full of beauty and so much soul, soulful being being touched. You can trust that. So we don't have to think, oh, this is all going swimmingly wonderfully but there's just that node and then and then worry about that you know so it's working don't don't worry about it um maybe we'll get some expansion of the teachings here that we haven't thought about yet it's very possible you know um as you say you you feel love there's there's somehow love i mean there's, there's love for your sister it sounds like you know so there's love that way but um uh, so there's some portion of it already present, and certainly between the characters in the image. But <coughs> um, I don't know the answer, actually, and I find that interesting. But it may well be that as you hang out with this, it, it, it becomes clear. I just wouldn't... Um, it's a great question. I just wouldn't lean too much on it um, at, at, at the risk of kind of disturbing the natural soul-making sort of fermentation that, that's happening there. Yeah? Did you, do you want to say more? Is that okay? Yeah, thank you. It's beautiful. <laughs> Um, okay, it's ten to six. What should we? <laughs> um, there's actually only a couple more. Um, one question: here, What would you have called eros psyche logos instead? Please expand a lot. 
actually not. I'm misreading. It says a bit. <laughs> um, <coughs> I don't know. I don't know what I would have called them. I don't. I, I, um, the only the only issue I have with those words. I know some people don't like the Greek, but um, in a way, the Greek is good because they're um, they're to a certain extent unfamiliar. Which is which is saying, oh, what is that? What do you mean when you say that? If we used words like love or even just desire or passion or lust or you know, um, it. it it would they they're so so commonly used words that we tend to think we know what that means and what the range is, etc. So giving them kind of <coughs> slightly unusual names just um helps to support that sense of what is that? I don't quite know what it is. Um I'd, I've no idea what I would have called them in retrospect. The only reason I, I sometimes feel like oh I wish we'd used even imaginal or soul and all that different words is just because of, I think what I said the other day, is that they, <coughs> um, these words are used in lots of different um, uh, practices and settings and traditions um, these days. And uh, as much as I know about them, it's clear that we also mean something different. And if it's very easy if you use the same words to just assume that the same thing is meant. Um, less so with logos. The only... The only Logos used to be used a lot in in Western culture because you know it's the beginning of St John's Gospel. Uh, in the beginning was the logos, actually the word it gets translated. In the beginning was the logos, and that had uh, all kinds of meanings um, coming from Platonism, uh, etc. That, um, but that's kind of gone out of vogue. And <coughs> the only place I know that really uses it is the Ridwan teachings, where they talk about the logos of the teachings, meaning the conceptual framework of the teachings, uh, and that whole paradigm. <coughs> but so I'm less uncomfortable with the word logos just because it's more rare uh, and so less likely to be just put in the same box as what what we might have encountered elsewhere. Um, eros and psyche, I, I don't know. I'm not sure it matters too much, but um, I, I can't think we could just make up words, but yeah, I'm not sure. Um, then, then the last one I actually didn't understand this question. Oh, just going back to the lovely image of, of the sister. I don't think the issue was about the snapshot uh, thing. That, that That's just a certain um, kind of temporal style that the image was in. Um, so I, I think that has nothing to do with the question of love and being loved. So some images are just snapshots, but they have this some are a bit more narrative or like Karen shared, there's an image, but it has a whole narrative background. I don't think that... Um, that relates, that's relevant. So then th there's a question I just didn't answer. The person asked yesterday, and then again, they wanted it addressed today, but I don't quite know what, I'll read it, and then ma maybe you can help a little bit, if that's okay. So, <coughs> to be willing to experience fully the grief of extinction of life on earth, of humans, of ancestors, and all their blessing of their particular li lives or lines? Lives, yeah. To be willing to fully accept this also means to stay connected deeply to everyone else and their grief, rather than freedom from suffering. Isn't this the Bodhisattva path? Um, I'm also referring here to the four-part talk you gave about awakening, asking what do you want. Can you, do you want to expand a little? I'm not sure I understand quite what the question is around.
What's the it? Sounds the same. you hear that? Yeah, everyone okay? Yeah. Um, thank you, Ron. Um, I don't remember what I meant on this talk, sorry, but um, but I do think, <coughs> um, you know, one of the things that's happened, uh, there's a few things that's happened since the Buddha gave his teachings, and um, one is that, um, you know, wha- wha- however some people might try and kind of tear things out of the Pali canon or whatever, the, the, the Buddhist teachings are pretty entrenched in, um, in a worldview that believes in rebirth and the possibility, you know, being bo- reborn according to your karma um, and suffering and suffering and suffering and suffering until you get awake and you get off, off that wheel of rebirth. Um, if we take that out, you know, and, and so a lot of people no longer believe such a, such a um, uh, cosmology, um, then you're left with what does it actually mean? What does awakening actually mean? And what you get is a lot of different interpretations of what that means. What does it mean when you take away this ending rebirth as as a goal? Um, <coughs> and I feel it's quite important to um, to be on a path that feels authentic. You need to be on a path. I need to be on a path that feels authentic to me, that makes sense, that I really can get behind what I'm trying to do and what the goal is. 
So I don't know what I meant in that talk, and it was probably in a certain context, so I don't want to ha- hazard right, right now, but, but this, still this principle of what do you want? And if, if that's your sense of this is what I want from my life, I want to uh, be in solidarity, I don't want to be removed, I want to be available, I want to be in service to the world and, and the planet and the suffering, then you should trust that. And the question is, how can I support that? What do I need? How do I make that uh, a sustainable path and a beautiful path, really? Um, historically, uh, as another historical point, even, even the notion of the Bodhisattva has is, is gone through quite a lot of changes um, in different cultures over time, and particularly now in the West. So that if you, start, if you went back and read, say, Shantideva, or uh, some of the original teachings on the Bodhisattva path. He talks about wanting to be there, sacrifice himself for all beings and all this and that. And he goes through all this like very sort of um, florid poetry of, of renunci- self-renunciation sacrifice. Then you turn the page to the next chapter and he's like, right, let's get away from all these people um, and find a solitary place where I can meditate and become awakened and just where there's no one around and I'm not disturbed by anyone. Um, the, the idea was, uh, it, it's, it's also wrapped up in, in, in what it is to be a Buddha, and a Buddha in the Mahayana is someone who, um, it's really complicated, but it's, it's someone who's somehow a transcendent being, but has emanations here on, on, on uh, earth. So whether they're suffering or not, you know, it's, it's a whole question. It then somewhere along the line came, came to mean this thing of someone who would postpone their awakening to, uh, which it didn't originally mean, actually. Um, and then more, even more recently in the West, it's come to mean just someone who um, sees their path as, as much about service as about meditation, let's say that, or even more about service than meditation. That's what they want to do. They want to be in, in the marketplace, in the thick of the things, in the refugee camps or whatever it is, or out there on this pavement with Extinction Rebellion, whatever it is, and, um, and, and that's their path. And now there is a certain freedom in that there can be. Um, so it, 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 the word means something different. I think the more important thing is, because the whole metaphysic is completely up for grabs these days, you, you back, I would give the question back to each of us, what do you really want? Like what's you, you don't know when you're going to die. You don't know how long you have. You don't know how long you're going to have your faculties for and your energy. What do I want? What do I want? And, and can I let that go deep and burn deep and stay steady with that and, 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 and have it translate into my life and make it a priority? Um, and that will be different from person to person. So we live in this part of the postmodern predicament is that there's no ag- agreed upon metaphysic etc so you're free basically uh, now that no it's not universally agreed on that the end of rebirth is what awakening full awakening arahantship or whatever it looks like and um, the question is what do you make of it and what do you want and what does it mean to you and what do you most deeply want for your life so i would i would give it give it back that way um just one very brief thing um Still within that, you're going to notice. I noticed some years ago, and I'd done, I think uh, I was, this is 20, more than 20 years ago, uh, or maybe around 20 years ago. Um, and I, was <coughs> I w- had been focusing a lot on jhana practice and, and really getting into it and making some headway and feeling super excited about that. And 
and I was uh, been on retreat and, and was was at home back in my rhythm of my life and <coughs> and was practicing would notice on the days when the samadhi was really good my heart didn't feel as sort of tender and open as it did on the other days and sometimes when my heart was tender it was the days when the samadhi wasn't wasn't so the jhanic samadhi wasn't so available and that really struck me so it's similar to what you're saying um in a way, you know, we'd like to think there's this state of mind where you can just get it and you have everything right there. And it's all just tickety-boo and everything's available. I'm not sure. So it might be more fluid than that. You know, um, it's interesting to me, the Buddha, when he talks about right intention, the second factor on the Eightfold Path, he puts things in negative right intention, right or right thought sometimes. He puts things in the negative, so it says, it could say something like an intention for kindness, an intention for compassion, an intention for um, renunciation, but he doesn't. He says an intention for non-harming, an intention for non-cruelty. And to me that always implied the possibility that if I'm right there in the fourth jhana, uh, I'm not, I'm not, actively doing meta. I'm not thinking about, I'm, I'm not even that sensitive, but I'm in a state of non-harming and non-cruelty. It's an absence. So I wonder whether he put things in the negative because he realized you can't, you can't be in any one state that's going to have all of that. What we want is a life that, well, what I want and what you may want <laughs> is a life that has access to that you know that they're never too far away. That you can you can fluidly mix between them, and you know, or I think you know, that if you're an activist, you need some deep resources. You need some recharging. You need some rest, and 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 that samadhi and that kind of just like I'm just now with with this with myself. It's so helpful when you then go out and you meet the suffering in the world, or you want to do something courageous, or that takes a lot of energy and a lot of work. Um, so that the going back and forth becomes really skillful. In a larger context, last thing, because I think we do have to eat, right? Um, <laughs> that's on a longer time frame, so I look at my life and I feel, um, I feel very called to uh, serve, you know, in different ways. But I also obviously have been very called to, to explore meditative depths and, and that whole thing. And I look at, you know, I've done long retreats. I think at one point I spent most of a three-year period on, on retreat, you know. Um, it, was, it was always clear to me that that was in, in the, even at the time, and at the time I was right in there with all the joy and everything and very secluded, not speaking to hardly anyone. It was always clear to me that that was a, um, a portion of a journey in the service of something that wasn't just about, you know, I get to feel good, you know. Um, so there's, there's a way, you know, some people have a figure out a life where it's kind of, you know, balanced. They're kind of just about balancing these things as it goes along. If I look more at my, my life, and I'm not saying there's a right or wrong, there's just different styles of doing it. I can see rhythms and rhythms where it's much more contemplative and, and rhythms where it's, it's actually a little bonkers. I'm way too busy and et cetera, but, but I'm in the flow of, let's say a service or, or, or whatever. And so I, I look more at that balance, but anyway, if you're dedicated to serving and caring and compassion and, and embodying that and expressing that, you're going to need also to take care of yourself um, as, as a minimum. So, so those periods when you feel I'm a little less in touch, it's like, it's okay. That's exactly, 
you know, also when you're fast asleep, and no one would say you shouldn't, you shouldn't fall asleep. You know, you need to rest, and you turn, you turn, th- things get turned off. You know, the world gets turned off when you're asleep. So we need that. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I would basically give you back the question, your vision of uh, what's beautiful, what's noble, what calls you, what you, the 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 the, the life that you feel that if you were on your deathbed, clear and looking back with a clear mind, that you would feel you don't have regrets. Not that you achieved everything you wanted to achieve, but at least you went for it. Yeah, that's, that's important. Um, and only you can answer that. I can't answer that for you. The Buddha can't answer you know. So that, that feels really important to me. Yeah, and to, to, to know that, to be clear about it, to stay close to it, to stay true to it, to, to, to live that with passion. Yeah. Um, let's stop so that we can eat. (laughs) Okay, let's just have a bit of quiet. (coughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.